0: Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear excerpts from an historic reunion of the Darkroom Collective. When James Baldwin died in 1987, his funeral in New York was a major event, with eulogies by many important African American writers. Young aspiring poets Sharon Strange and Thomas Sayers Ellis were saddened by the realization that such an important voice, one of their literary ancestors, had died without them getting to know him. Upon returning to Cambridge, Massachusetts, Strange and Ellis were determined to make something positive from the loss. They founded the Darkroom Collective as a small reading series that soon grew into an expansive community of writers supporting and nurturing each other through workshops, discussions, and readings in multiple cities up and down the East Coast. This reunion of the collective was held at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in April 2012. The mood was festive and celebratory. The audience was enthusiastic and welcoming. One tradition of the Darkroom Collective is to have the speakers appear in random order. For this occasion, names were drawn from a hat. The first name picked was Nea Sayu Degans. Now an actress and a playwright as well as a poet, she joined the collective in the early 1990s while living in Philadelphia.
1: Thank you. It is indeed a pleasure to be here. I grew up in Canada, left Montreal and went to Philadelphia and saw the Darkroom Collective for the first time and the Painted Bride Art Center and was welcomed into the family and later traveled back northwards to Providence, Rhode Island, which became home for a while. And with another dark room collective member was invited to act in a new play at Brown University and I've been acting ever since. So somehow by getting on that train I've been led other places. I'll begin with Ironweed which is a Providence poem and a Canada poem and a Caribbean poem. It uh, begins with an epigraph, Iron In 1734, Angelique, a black slave of Francois Poulin of Montreal, was told that she was to be sold. In her fear and resentment, she set fire to her master's house. The house and other nearby property were destroyed and Angelique was arrested, convicted of arson and sentenced to hang. A rope was tied around her neck. Signs bearing the word incendiary were fastened on her back and chest and she was driven through the streets in a scavenger's cart. Worse was to come. She was tortured until she confessed her crime before a priest. Then her hand was cut off and she was hanged in public. This information can be found in Daniel G. Hill's The Freedom Seekers, Blacks in Early Canada. Heavy black boots crunch up hope, Street, so this is Providence, Rhode Island. My tongue is dubious of New England names. Benevolent and angel appear and reappear in thick circles of air. Across Lloyd I run, purple woolen fingers along a strophe of iron bars, tasting dates hammered into iron plates. Here, history gives itself away. Mount Hope is not a mountain, a fort, not even a church, but a daycare center run by women. Mothers who come from the islands, not this island, leave on mornings. Now at dusk, they reappear, purple silhouettes against a chain-link fence whistling names. One child quivers at the hiss and ring of her name. In the Antilles, a wet finger kissing hot iron flickers the way a snake's tongue flickers. A woman reappears, then disappears, begging light at my grandmother's door. She hopes to reclaim a body. She has come for her island daughter. A tropical silhouette I run, waiting thick snow until I can't outrun the years anymore, shed their names. Hope, belts east, looping south to Blackstone, la ceinture, deal. So I bury the belt to my traveling dress, under the ironweed, next to a paling fence, a sway-backed serpent, molting hope of everlasting life. Saltwater souls appear to disappear from this New England town. Once in New France, I appeared, a cardboard plaque for a face black ink running incendiary language a mother's reverent hope for a daughter hello my name is my father's name is in case of fire call now my feet really feel like iron. Bell bruised and weighted, ringing this plantation island. An electric crucifix crests that real mountain island where mother and child are sighted. Reappearing at dusk, white lights twinkling on a skeleton of iron, we begin our thunderous descent. Blood runs, a river runs, down my brown thighs. Yes, Monarca shares its name with moon. This flowering fist is a vain stump of hope. I sigh angel, Angelique appears. In a flickering red run, a siren's angelus, Rhode Island ignites the palingenesis of a name. My bilingual retina hosts her smoldering, my ironic hunger for home." Years after <laughs> years after writing that particular poem, um, I learned through the work of another Caribbean Canadian historian who had come to Providence to do some research that there is evidence to suggest that Marie Angelique was actually purchased in Rhode Island and taken to Montreal. Um, such is the associative poetry of a place. One Fine Philadelphia Morning, and this is in A Crown of Sevens, um, a form invented by Kate Russian, a friend of the collective. One Fine Philadelphia Morning. In a mansion on Walnut, our black heroine awakes. Our black heroine awakes, knowing she's alone, sleeps more. Knowing she's alone ignores the antique doorbell ringing in a mansion on Walnut. The antique doorbell ringing, the downstairs phone's eruptions, the downstairs phone's disruptions do not disturb our heroine. Our heroine is not perturbed, friendless in this new city. The antique doorbell ceases. Friendless in this new city, the staircase sighs, a door creaks. The staircase sighs, a door creaks. Arthritic trick of the wind. Just the wind's arthritic tricks. Our heroine sighs, hello, friendless in this new city. Our heroine rises, hello, peers down the railing's cascade. Peering down the dark cascade, sees the thief. She's not alone. Does the man see her? She's stone. His back to her, he tiptoes. Our heroine stifles help. His back to her he tiptoes, down, down with a small black case, down, down with a small black case, dispatcher picks up, whisper, dispatcher picks up, whisper, ma'am, speak up, I can't hear you, ma'am, speak up, I can't hear you, is the suspect a black male? His back to her. She tiptoes. Is the suspect a black male? Dispatches old souls dusting. Old black souls dusting the rails of her grad school studio. In her grad school studio, Du Bois and Ellison march. Is the suspect a black male? Du Bois and Ellison watch. The phone. A cop's loaded gun. A cop's loaded gun. Her phone. Yes, he's black. Her tears are black. Yes, he's black. Her tears are black. Aren't all our heroine's brothers? Du Bois's and Ellison's march. And this is also from uh, the chat book, Undressing the River, uh, an elegy for... My brother's funeral palette is an explosion of flowers. And he burns clean as sandalwood, and leaves burn green as lizards in the sun. I wear the white dress he stitched and painted with flowers. It is late afternoon in Guyana. The light is rugged, dredged like gold through a day-miner's sieve. On the road to Timahari, we pass cassava piled high in cargo-bound pyramids. I turn to look at my hands. Evening is a crate. The sun enters slowly. I turn to look at my brother. Spokes of a wheelchair, slats of a bench, pink flecked light hunkers down. The cancerous cells have sent out their call to hunker down. Two flamingo pink ice cream cones beckon from my hands. Jump on, jump on, he shouts. We'll wheel out to sea. I kick off and rudder his tricycle. My pleated blue skirt is the sail. Two guava pink cones drip back to my hands. Lenny limps to his wheelchair. Guava is terrorosa, mashed to a pulp, cool as my hand on his back, leading the fever astray. Some chrysanthemums are red. Lick the cold, churned cream. Lick the syrupy paper. I try to feather it free. The tarmac is the cracked black back of the lizard we call death. Granny is lighting the stove to fry fish. Anthuriums bolt and sail from my hand. My ears are full of coconut water. Noon is a halo, a crescendo of gulls. The barrels are studded with birds. I open the door, exit the cab. When he is smoke, where will he go? And the last poem. I'm a Great Lakes girl. Uh, I grew up not only. in Toronto, but when I was very little, on the shores of Lake Huron. So, in honor of being here in Chicago, here's a Great Lakes poem Homecoming. White-gloved and perched on the rear hood of the chrome-hubbed convertible gleaming white in the Lake Huron sun, I am one of three girls chosen to be vestal virgins to the altar of white, Diana's maidens to the homecoming queen. Our white-stocking legs and polished white shoes brood statuesque over the rear red leather. Our white eyelets shivering, our white ribbons flagging, our white-gloved hands waving and waving and waving to the white faces. Lining the tree-lined streets Lining the small Scottish town But the hand inside my glove is brown And the face peeping from the white-ruffled neck Of my summer white dress is a beautiful hazelnut brown This is my hometown My legs, two severe batons Majorette, the hot Red leather, even after the crowds thin out and the breeze off the lake picks up, even after the bagpipe's keen moan fades, out past the Protestant oaks, out past the immigrants' bell-less church with its small brick frame, its gravel driveway, out towards the cornfields, when only Lake Huron with its lull of tall grasses and only the perennial pines wave back, I am still waving.
0: That was Nea Sayu Degans. Next up is John Keane, who has published fiction, poetry, essays, and translations, and currently teaches at Northwestern University.
2: So it's wonderful to have the opportunity to uh, be reading with um, fellow Dark Room writers. I have been to a number of different institutions, uh, worked at a number of different ones, but I don't think I ever got an education as thorough and uh, as remarkable as I did during the years that I uh, first got to know them. So I'm just going to read four poems, and uh, I'll do two old poems and uh, two newer poems. Me, this is a Boston poem. The Haymarket. The Haymarket no longer slings back rock gut GTs before 2 a.m. as the doors close. These days, like the Napoleon sporters bohemian, the zone itself, it's a monument to pure memory but it was already dying the evening we went to hear jennifer holiday wail and i'm telling you and jointly remarked how far she'd fallen since the kilimanjaro of dream girls reconnecting with her audience base is another way of putting it and she missed not a single note hunched over that microphone song after song sweating through her spangles like a dock worker as men slid to and fro in shade in front of the box stage. That was the night you tore out my throat over my words with an ex who you'd hurled from your car years before when you'd first heard his tales of woe, whom later I observed sneak out of Keller's to avoid a Brooklyn ass whooping. I wanted to remember that as a night two drag queens tall as Maasai threw down in front of the dumpsters, hurling pumps and wigs like gladiators in a carnival-sized crowd swelled the lot, pacing the glass, chatting, cruising, watching the battle as Warren offered play by play, knowing the full tea, and Johnny offered up beauty in a snaggled grin, and Slender Darryl, laughing a cap over his velvety brow, reintroduced himself to me, who hadn't yet moved into Love's house with you. But that melee, too, occurred summers before, when that club still felt as new as a gift, alive, dangerous, though not as bad as they'd warned us, and every man met, I recalled by name and face, half believing I'd never see them again because they'd disappear into wrong numbers, conceived on the spot, or ragged married lives, or the shadows that only grew redier in the cl- club's corners when you drank too much, or danced too much, or learned that someone else you liked and hoped to hook up with had passed and you stepped out without a ride and missed the T knowing no taxis were going to ferry you all the way back to Warren Avenue for less than $10 in that indifferent midnight Boston rain. (laughs) Try to remember that South African man. Sometimes I try to remember the name of that South African man who insisted who insisted on being called colored even though in this country he would have qualified as black. He was more attached to that identification than any other such as older, dapper, tourist, uncut, speaks afrikaans, wears glasses. His hair slipped under my fingers like lamb's wool. He could tongue longer than any guy I'd come across thus far. What did we talk about as we lay on the comforter in his hotel room, getting around Boston on foot, how we'd both considered studying architecture, apartheid over there, racism here, especially how black Americans had achieved so much in comparison, how we seemed to take everything for granted, back and forth. Imagine if just bitching about inadequate schools and lack of housing could land you at the bottom of a ditch, he asked me. But it happens here too, I protested. He smiled. Respect your elders, even if they're lovers. Be quiet now. And then his palm covered my mouth and nose, leaving only a tiny slit for me to breathe. This is how they held me before they began to beat me, he said. Then he rained down another round of kisses. suit. If sorrow is a suit, its weight is incalculable. One day he's gone, and you put it on. One day he's gone, and it sews itself inside you. Morning drapes your skin in its invisible fabric. Every memory furs atop a prior memory. Your limbs, your features, your senses extend themselves to accommodate the sadness. One morning you wake and try to wear this new suit in the bathroom or the bedroom, in the shower or at the front door, down the stairs of the stoop to the walkway, hovering before you, and you finally realize you are carrying another body, his body, your former body, your bodies together, in and on you, and this slows you and stills you weighs more than two bodies or many bodies inside your body. It's like the bodies are breeding bodies, metastasizing bodies. So much bone and vein and hair. And you touch the force, the heat of the seething arteries. Feel the sheer new tonnage moving and pressing in on you. Griefs scent like the first breath in a foreign country. And you fear your entry, but you're already in. You think of flight. But sorrow offers no exit. You sing, you weep, you dance, but there's no way out. Except one, through your own skin. This one, heavy with sweat, matted, half shed, and broken by a delta of scars. Smelling of something familiar, indiscernible, and animal. Slick and smoldering like volcanic rock, as white as ash and death itself. Take it. You take it. You take it off. And this is my uh, last poem. It's uh, somewhat lighter in nature, so if you laugh it's totally okay. It's called How to Draw a Bunny, and it's for Ray Johnson and Nayland Blake. Drawing a bunny requires, at a minimum, a pencil and some paper. Talking about the bunny or talking about drawing the bunny is not the same as drawing the bunny. Drawing a bunny requires only three strokes if you capture the ears in only one. Drawing a bunny requires only a modicum of will. When you are drawing a bunny, try not to talk about drawing a bunny. When you are drawing a bunny, try not to think about drawing a bunny. When you are drawing a bunny, try not to think about drawing a pussy <laughs> or a cock. The bunny may be male or female or no gender at all, so long as it's a bunny. The bunny may be black or white or gray or fluorescent or any color or no color at all and drawn in 13 or more ways, so long as it's a bunny and not a blackbird. Drawing a bunny is unlikely to make you rich or popular or the subject of extensive gossip or scholarly discussion, except among those who care about drawing bunnies and drawing bunnies. (laughs) Drawing a bunny doesn't mean that you have drawn the true bunny or the false bunny, just that you have drawn the bunny. Just because you've drawn the bunny doesn't mean you know the bunny. Just because you've drawn the bunny doesn't mean you do not know the bunny. The bunny as idea or image need not carry any metaphysical weight. The bunny as idea or image can nevertheless still function perfectly well as a trope or metaphor. Speaking about the bunny as, quote, beautiful, unquote, introduces a host of philosophical problems. The drawn bunny may or may not be undrawing itself, which is for someone else to discern. The half-drawn bunny is not the... not the same as the drawn, partially drawn, or undrawn bunny. Drawing a bunny is not the same as drawing a puppy or a kitten unless you designate them rigidly under the name bunny. Why draw a bunny when you can draw a pony or a tank or a dollar sign? Why draw a bunny when you can draw bathwater or compounded interest or 57 magnum? Why draw a bunny or dollar sign when you can draw up your own will? To erase a bunny requires only three strokes. Drawing a bunny can be emotional or unemotional, though the effect is usually evaluative. Drawing a bunny has a number of purposes, the chief of which is drawing a bunny. Drawing a bunny requires no originality, even if your livelihood or sense of self and authenticity hinge on it. Drawing a bunny requires no philosophy, though you and the bunny may be of a philosophical bent. Drawing a bunny doesn't depend upon your dreaming a bunny, though it's best if you draw before you dream. The dream bunny will never be the drawn bunny, since the artwork is always the death mask of its conception. Drawing a bunny requires no talent, even though you may put great stock in artistic genius. Drawing a bunny requires a modicum of concentration, even though you might put no stock in artistic technique. Drawing a bunny is like learning a language, only it takes considerably less time. Drawing a bunny can occur anywhere you can draw a bunny. Drawing a bunny saves no one, though at least the very least the bunny is drawn. Drawing a bunny only requires three strokes, so the effect can be abstract, representational, or conceptual, or some medium between the three. Drawing a bunny says only about you that you drew a bunny, and nothing about your intellect or character. Drawing a bunny successfully will make you want to draw another bunny. (laughs) Drawing a bunny unsuccessfully will make you want to draw another bunny. Drawing a bunny requires only a pencil or similar writing instrument and some paper. Drawing, undrawing, or withdrawing a life requires a lifetime. Thank you.
0: John Keane, speaking at the Darkroom Collective Reunion. The next poet is Kevin Young author of seven books of poetry. He teaches at Emory University and is curator of the poetry library there.
3: Evening. I'm gonna read mostly uh, poems, but I thought I'd start with a little bit uh, from my latest book, um, The Grey Album, which is a nonfiction book. Total life is what we want, that's what I'm saying. Um, So uh, I'm gonna read just a little bit of the overture which um, is kind of a series of shout outs to uh, the things that we should shout out to. Overture. Frederick Douglass finding a route to defeat his master. High John to conquer, learning to write on the sly. Writing herself free passes to leave the plantation. Henry Box Brown mailing himself to freedom. Phyllis Wheatley's letters to Obor, a code to her poems. Pretending to be an owner, and traveling north with your husband disguised as a slave, writing letters from the south that pretend to be from the north so no one will look for you, freeing oneself from the fact of slavery with the fiction of song. The River Jordan is really the Ohio, slaves composing poems for money to buy their freedom, basket names, Dave the slave's pottery and poetry elsewhere. Langston Hughes's autobiography, novels by slaves that aren't really but barely masked autobiography, sorry, novels by slaves that aren't really but barely masked autobiography, the Bond's, Bond woman's narrative, masks and modernity, jungle music, the primitivism of Picasso, and the Picasso-esque qualities of primitivism, Zora Neale Hurston pretending she's a bootlegger to record, which is to say bootleg, the lies of her neighbors, the blues singer, the numbers writer, the root worker, and the conjure woman. Not the Confederate bill, nor the contraband of slaves. Passing, sometimes, sometimes the blue-tailed fly. Not Sally Hemings, but the story of Sally Hemings and her descendants we always knew about. Clotel, or the president's daughter. Not Strom Thurmond, but his black daughter we'd heard of for years. Mm-hmm, told you so. The payback, the groove, the crazy blues, the exquisite, the silver surfer, Dick Gregory's dollars, Thelonious Monk's stamps, Bob Kaufman's silence started after Kennedy was shot, only ending at the announcement of the end of the Vietnam War. His silence, broken by declaiming T.S. Eliot's murder in the cathedral, mashed up with his own poem, all the ships that never sailed. Mademoiselle bourgeoisie noire, Girl, you know it's true. Angela's mixtape. Orpheus in the Bronx. Drexia, the underwater utopia. We can dance underwater and not get wet. The robot, wild style. To frink, to clown, to crump, getting crunk mingering Mike, who invented mingering and then did it, painting and drawing his own fake records and selling millions in his own bedroom and selling snowballs on the street. So, um, I'll read a few newer poems. This is an ode. I've been writing these odes um, for a few years now. Uh, and this is Ode to Old Dirty Bastard. <laughs> Do I need to gloss who that is? You'll hear his other names in the poem. Ode to Old Dirty Bastard. F.U. Motor mouth. Clown of class warfare. Welfare millionaire. How dare you disappear when we need your shimmy shimmy yaw here. (laughs) Osiris of this shiznit, your body's now scattered on wax. No monument, no fortune left, just what you made and spent, I hope, on skunk weed. And worse, good morning, heartache. Your carelessness reminds us how quick we are to judge, how serious things done become. Dirty as the south, sweet as neon cherry pie filling from a can. I hear folks still call your number in Brooklyn all hours and ask the sleepy still listed Russell Jones, no relation, come out and play. Baby, I got your money. Big baby Jesus, dirt McGurt, alias addict. Of course you can't be reached. You're too busy, rusty, wigging out, dancing in a hump suit and jerry curl toupee. Your tiny tacky dreads hidden, your grill of gold melted down to pay off St. Pete or Beezlebub to buy just one more dose of freedom. This is um, a poem from a book called Dear Darkness. And this poem appeared in a poetry. So I think of it as a Chicago poem. It's also an ode to the Midwest. It starts with a um, quote from Bob Dylan. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I want to be doused in cheese and fried. I want to wander the aisles my heart's supermarket stocked high as cholesterol. I want to die wearing a sweatsuit. I want to live forever in a Christmas sweater, a teddy bear nursing off the front. I want to write a check in the express lane. I want to scrape my driveway clean myself early before anyone's awake. That'll put them to shame. I want to see what the sun sees before it tells the snow to go. I want to be the only black person I know. I want to throw See. I want to throw out my back and not complain about it. I want to drive 2 blocks. Why walk? I want love and stuff. I want to cut my sutures myself. I want to jog down to the river and make it my bed. I want to walk its muddy banks and make me a withdrawal. I tried jumping in, found it frozen. I'll go home, I guess, to my rooms where the moon changes and shines like television. This last poem is um, for my son, or about my son, I should say. It's about him being born though. I realize that people aren't just born, you know, there's things that have to happen. So my mother (laughs) Um, So this poem is, uh, the hero of this poem is uh, his mother, my wife. Uh, Especially because he was nine pounds, 13 ounces. Yeah, he had like neck fat when he came out. (laughs) This is called crowning. Now that knowing means nothing, now that you are more born than being, more awake than awaited, since I've seen your hair deep inside mother, a glimpse, grass and late winter, early spring, watching your mother's pursed, throbbing, purpled power, her pushing you for one whole hour two. Almost three, almost out, maybe never. Animal smell and peat, breath and sweat and mulch matter. And at once you descend or drive, are driven by mother's body, by her will and brilliance, by bowel, by wanting, and your hair peering as if it could see. And I saw you storming forth, tap root, your cap of hair half in, half out, and wait. Hold it there, the doctors say. And she squeezing my hand, her face full of fire, then groaning your face out like a flower. Blood bloom, crocus into air. Shoulders and the long cord still rooting you to each other to the other world, into this afterlife among us living. The cord I cut like an iris, pulsing. Then you wet against mother's chest, still purple, not blue, not yet red. No cry, warming now, now opening your eyes, midnight blue in the blue black dawn. Thank you.
0: That was Kevin Young. The next speaker is Sharon Strange, co-founder of the Dark Room Collective. Strange grew up in South Carolina, attended Harvard, and has been a writer in residence at several universities. She teaches at Spelman College.
4: I just want to say how lovely it is to be here and um, to be in Chicago, which is a city that I will be getting to know since my sister um, recently moved here again. and just coming in from the airport today, I was just struck with the visual beauty of uh, Chicago. So happy to be in Chicago. And thank you all for coming out um, to hear us and to support this reunion of the Dark Room Collective. I thought of this reading as, a cha- as a, something of a retrospective. Um, so I th- that was the approach I was going to take with reading poems. Uh, again, so retrospectively, I'll, just, I'll read a couple of poems to just mark certain phases. And I'll start with the poem, Childhood, which comes from um, my collection, Ash, which is a collection of poems about my childhood and my family. Childhood. Summer brought fireflies in swarms. They lit our evenings like dreams we thought we couldn't have. We caught them in jars, punched holes, carried them around for days. Luminous abdomens that, when charged with air, turn bright. Imagine mere insects carrying such cargo. Magical caravans flickering beneath low July skies. We chased them, amazed. The idea, those tiny bodies pulsing phosphorescence. They made reckless traffic signaling neon flashes forever into the deepening dusk. They gave us new faith in the nasty tonics of childhood, pungent, murky liquids promising shining eyes, strong teeth glowing skin. And we silently vowed to swallow ever after. What was the secret of light? We wanted their brilliance small fires hovering each tiny explosion, the birth of a new world." And I also feel compelled to do a Chicago tribute poem. And this isn't so much a tribute to Chicago as it is a tribute to Gwendolyn Brooks. Mm -hmm. And I try to think of her cadence when she would read uh, those uh, poems for children, or just her cadence when she would read. And um, I won't dare say that I captured it, but that's what I had in mind as I was structuring the poem and, and the syntax of the poem and just the pacing of the poem. In praise of the young and black, after Gwendolyn Brooks. Later and always we must speak of their splendor, those of us who nurture and honor them, and of their destinies as we admonish against casting their beauty to the undeserving or neglecting to be self-beloved, forgetting fierce selfhood, ancestral inheritance, ontological imperative that they are answer to first questions and fates of nations. Before that we must exalt them as they begin to fathom the power of sure bodies and brown grace to allure and frighten and know a power that seeks to suppress their own out of craving and sense of defeat. Yet first we must catch them with gentle hands that guide away from giddy danger as elastic with happiness they balance big grins and delicate necks eyes gleaming in the neon glare of rejection. Let us remind them of the ripe core of their own divinity as they taste the world's first offering of unlove." All right, so I'll read uh, two more, and those sort of mark um, uh, different phases. Early, uh, early beginnings of uh, writing with the collective um, was childhood. And then the uh, other poem was written um, after I had left, uh, left the collective and, and moved further south to D.C. And then here's a poem that also uh, marks a moving further south. Since the darkroom I have literally moved down the east coast to New York, to D.C., and now to Atlanta. Um, And this poem sort of uh, happened in a period when I was in transition from uh, D.C. and moving further south, and I met a woman on the Greyhound bus, and she told me her story, and I decided that I would make a poem of it, and this is the poem that that came out of it. It's also important to me because I'm a Southerner. Claim, and the epigraph is from Walt Whitman. My tongue every atom of my blood formed from this soil, this air, formed here of parents born here, from parents the same and their parents the same. Sun reaching through the bus window makes her a flame. White cloth twining her head ignites the tip of a body dressed all in white as if readied for dipping in the Sunday stream. Though she hardly knew the woman who would have counseled her preparation, reminding her not to fight the preacher, just lay back, meet the water with the ease of the unburdened. Who had left these backwoods dispossessed and angry by this same road but northward, like ancestors who traced rivers, moss, nocturnal light to the city. This trip reverses that repudiation of the South. As she recounts her grandmother's deathbed wishes, reviews her own bitter struggles, she's a torch, glowering in midday. Old cruelties mark this soil. Its memory takes trope and jolts her crippled back records. And she winces, reminded of a newer corporate toll. But a disability settlement's reluctant reparation is just enough to purchase her inheritance, make her the family's agent fulfilling old ambition. Gnarled braids escape her head wrap, signify on native trees warped by heavy fruit. The house those trees built Taproots drawing her forebears' blood and sweat, their cries and prayers into the very walls will be her grandmother's again. The greyhounds bringing their twinned spirits home where she'll make for them an unassailable shrine. And um, I'll just read this a short poem Um, and it is Making Metaphor for Prophet Lee Davison. Impatient at the stop, how does one recognize a bus? At a distance it registers, large bulk, slow moving. Prophet is not quite too, she has not learned the word bus. But within minutes, she has the notion. And as we ride through Washington's wide streets, she says, in a toddler's slurred sing song, another one, a bus, each time. Then at the waterfront, my friend TSE takes her right up to crabs writhing in their bins again and again until repulsion becomes fascination. And after, at the park, She looks into the lifeless eyes, grasps a claw, takes bites of its proffered flesh. Does she see this one as kin to those others? Does she understand death? How long before the concept of crab cake will take hold? Meanwhile, TSE is up to his poet's tricks. A very pregnant woman lumbers into view. Look, prophet, he points, bus. (laughs) Thank you.
0: That was Sharon Strange. Next, we hear from Major Jackson, who joined the collective while living in Philadelphia. He is the author of three books of poetry and currently teaches at the University of Vermont.
5: I want to thank um, Poetry Foundation for hosting and I want to thank my peers, in the Dark Room Collective for giving me the gift of egoless writing. I'm just going to read one poem. Um, this is um, a poem called Alleyways. Alleyways. We called them brigantine castles, haunted dark lairs waiting to be exercised. When the moon hung like a swinging lamp, we stalked their entrances judging distance, assessing the proper speed. John, John, Lefty, Walt, and me. Trained in such matters, we took off swift as mercury darting through Hades. This was not like jumping off the roofs of abandoned buildings onto used mastresses. We did not know what lurked behind the tight, narrow darkness, demons, spooks, trailing our footsteps, Terror and thrill circled us like satellites. Meadow fences and brick walls housed God-fearing dogs howling at our torsos. Like gunshots on New Year's Eve, we bolted, dashed, and stomped through trash, diapers, soda bottles, bread wrappers. Wide-eyed, arms flailing like sperm tails, sweat dripped from our faces. Our legs were horses, the sound of hearts beating in a ship of wells. We heard field hollers. Deliverance tickled our noses. We escaped our own carcasses. We became the wind, the stars, oceans inhabiting a space reserved for ancestors, locked in that rhythm of motion catching up with time, running alongside our forefathers, our bodies becoming this home, beating back drums. This poem was um, published in, the po- in poetry, so I thought I would read it as well. It's from a letter uh, to Gwendolyn Brooks. When you have forgotten, When you have forgotten to bring into play that fragrant morsel of rhetoric, crisp as autumnal air. When you have forgotten, say, sunlit corners, brick full of skyline, row homes, smokestacks, billboards, littered rooftops, and wondered what bread wrappers reflect of our hunger. When you have forgotten wide-brimmed hats, Sunday backseat leather rides to church, the door lock like a silver cane, the broad back swaying or the great moan deep churning and the shimmer flick of flat sticks, the lurch forward skip, hands up, alias drop. When you have forgotten the meaningful bop, hustlers and their care what may blase ballet and flight. When you have forgotten scruffy yards, miniature escapes, the way laundry lines strung up sag like shortened smiles. When you have forgotten a fishman barking his catch in inches up the street, I've got porgies, I've got trout, fish man, or his scoop and chain scale, his belief in shad and amberjack. When you have forgotten Ajax and tin pails, blue crystals frothing on marble front steps Saturday mornings, or the garden of old men playing checkers, the curbs whitewashed like two lines out to the burbs or the hopscotch squares painted new in the street, the pitter-patter of feet landing on rhymes. How do you like the weather, girls? All in together, girls. January, February, March, the jump rope's portentous looming, their great aching love blooming. When you have forgotten, packs a great-flavored noun, laters the squares of sugar flattening on the tongue, the elation you felt reaching into the corner store jar, grasping a handful of blow pops, candy bars with names you didn't recognize but came to learn, all the turf battles, all the war games. When you have forgotten popsicle stick races along the curb and hydrant water fights, then retrieve this letter from your stack I've sent by clavoyant post, and read by light, for it brought me as much longing and delight. This week's Father's Day, I've a long ride to Philly. I'll give this to Gramps, then head to Black Lily. I am in another lifetime worked as a, an accountant. In fact, when the, the part of my time in the Dark Run Collective to make it as a writer, I worked as an accountant both in Philadelphia and Boston. And often I would uh, get the question, um, do I write about um, numbers? Um, which I don't, but um, I'm just starting to as a means of building audience. <laughs> Um, Speaking a second language. It's this crazy economy we've been having. I saw a marble lobby on the street, security guard and all, which I fancied as delicious as a butterscotch crimpet. Only in that way of seeing far off a horizon made of a child's hand, I dismissed out of sheer inability to actually anthologize a preferential canon of taste. What we all are, a nobility of one. And now, this rain forest of price to earnings, I mix my gold keys with my sadnesses. Is rather homely. I must carry the gatehouse to my grave. My neighbors complain about their grubs when all I want is a plate of haddock, like bringing about a a major shift of attention to the suburban plain. All through the 80s and 90s, the take-home pay was more convincing. A sunrise decants his house music on my tilting glass of orange juice. A snazzy chorus in arithmetic or a little celebrity gossip will let you know only serious patrons with pre-qualified answers can appreciate his apolitical heartbreak. Leave it all up to me. All we want is to succumb to a single kiss that will contain us like a marathon with no finish line, and if so, that we land like newspapers before sunrise, halcyon mornings like blue martinis. I am learning the steps to a foreign song. Her mind was torpedo, and her body was storm, a kind of wow. All we want is a metropolis of Sundays, an empire of hand-holding and park benches. She says, leave it all up to me. And finally, oh, please don't. (laughs) It's too short to clap. (laughs) Um, As a nod to um, Cave Canem, When Kaveh Khanum turned 10 years old, the request was to write a 10-line poem. And I was in Cambridge at the time on a fellowship, and I um, hadn't written in about three months. And so when this um, assignment came along, I wrote this poem, which began the, the book Holding Company. It's called Fever. Fever. Had I possessed the poise to kick aside my faraway thirst for mornings, or the wide solo in the listening glass emptied of speech, had I possessed the incorruptible sermons of window panes or danced a little more in the lush inscriptions of your gaze, I, who believe in the fauna of dreams, in the hand that tunes a guitar, in the will of pages, might have journeyed to you like ash and abandoned all my fires and named the epic lights over your shoulders and seized your tumble-down rapture. Thank you.
0: That was Major Jackson. He's followed by poet and literary activist Thomas Sayers Ellis. A co-founder of the Dark Room Collective, Ellis was raised in Washington, D.C., attended Brown University, and now teaches at Sarah Lawrence College.
6: Somehow it's played out that like I'm like the bad guy, you know. I give, I give the eyes, uh, you know, I, I say win. I'm determined that we don't leave here tonight without at least a little bit of drama. <laughs> <laughs> the just went out you. <laughs> yeah. So there must be drama. As Zora Neal says in, what is that? Characteristics of Negro Expression, right? Drama. Kevin Young is the first person to actually make it from the Dark Room Collective into Poetry Magazine. i never forget that day. And Sharon Strange was the first person in the Dark Room Collective to make it into the Best American Poetry. And I remember that because Elizabeth Alexander called me the day after it came out and said, oh my God, Sharon broke the color line. (laughs) Marcus Garvey vitamins. This poem has like head movements in it, whatever. (laughs) A. All us, we, folk, person, community first, invent truth. B. No, he didn't. Yes, he... Did, ain't English, you, lying to me. C, Africa, disagrees with subject-verb agreement. Aspect ratio, D, widescreen, white ache. Don't like it, don't Pulitzer me. I, ooh, I didn't mean that back then, you know. I stress less than, lessness. E, I, break, beat, I, rhetorical strategy, I, escape, route, I, 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 psych. <laughs> we all, we know all oh, there is to no know, sort of, about Michael Jackson and nothing, really. But this section is called uh, The Black Beatles. The Black Beatles, that was a nickname they had at Motown. The screaming girls at the airport want brothers. They want to race, not run their fingers through afros. The shape of gold records, the kinky work of pleasure, as natural as the kinky work of of struggle. The only mop tops they've known drag wet floors, want to be wanted back and schooled. I before eat, except after seat. Maybe tomorrow, not yesterday. Longing, not loss. Their invasion, a salsation, comes from within. It is not from England. It is not British. Favorite sport, Jackson, chasing ages and heights to match their own ages and heights. The only thing more exhaustive than 1970 was 1971. (laughs) <laughs> the large hysterical crowds. Four consecutive number one hits. I want you back, Libra. ABC, Pisces. The love you save, Taurus. I'll be there, Virgo. But four is not enough of a crush. Five is. Four is fab. Fab four. Five. One more. A chance for ABC. To kiss, let it be, for the love you save. To stalk the long and winding road. Hard to hear anything in concert because of the screaming fan club position at the top of the charts. The number of weak knees at number one. Teen hearts everywhere. Hearts on posters. Heart stickers. Sorble heart Patches, Jackson Five coloring books, a J545 on the back of a cereal box. Cut it out. Tito, heart Dee Dee, Jermaine, heart Hazel, and everyone hearts Michael. Cartoon portraits framed by hearts, color draining blue meanies hustling a yellow submarine out the back door. Heart-shaped stars on their dressing room doors. Johnny's heart, two tragic drums stabbed in the snare. Soul merchandising, groovy valentines. The bass lines, heartburst finish of darling throbs. A heart at the bottom of a cursive J. A heart at the bottom of a cursive five. Right on.
0: Thank you.
6: So when they were in the studio doing Thriller, uh, the, the, name, the name they used for Billie Jean was originally Sonic Personality. And it was called that because that seemed to be the song with the most personality at the time. So they built a box, sort of like a telephone booth, a wooden thing for Michael to stand in and perform alone with the microphone coming through a little hole. And whenever they got to... Michael, would, Michael referred to that as a jelly... And he would say to Quincy, give me the jelly. And they would start that, and he would start the song. So that's one thing you might need to know. Michael had a snake named Muscles. You might want to know that. His brothers teased him all his life, calling him Big Nose, until he wasn't Big Nose anymore. Quincy Jones called him Smelly in the studio because he talked to Quincy like this. Covering his nose all the time. And Quincy would always say, What's wrong, Smelly? What's wrong? Something wrong? So here we go. Thank you for listening. Alone in the magic. Thunder thumbs to heart. Mummified heart. Heart to hand. Glittering hand. Hand to crotch. Accused crotch. More kicking stuff. Pose. Fedora on. Drama pelvis, kick and leave leg up. I should do the little thing, but kick and leave leg up to tap it. Arm jujitsu, kick and leave leg up to tap it. Quick cat in the cat stance, Vogue crisp, fedora off, pose and stare at it a grand second. Tossed, fabulous, clap, open triangle, big masculine hands around the defendant. Click, pretend to comb, click, click, switch sides to comb, flow, pocket, imaginary comb. Mic grab, slap, mic grab, choke. Smelly's mad at it for not being on. Smelly's trying to hide the size of it with his hands, but Big Nose ain't having it. Smelly counters with a new look, a jerry curl, rhinestones, and surgery, plastic. First to favor, the old songs. I love those songs. Those are magic moments with all of my brothers, including Jermaine. Run from or rush through the Medlia family just once more. Those were good songs. I like those songs a lot, but I especially like <laughs> Alone in the Jelly, lyricon denial to reverb, defiant reverb, reverb to hiccup, womanized hiccup, hiccup to crotch, angry crotch, annoying bass. To k doom doom k doom Took a Woo Mine would throw, look both ways, spin. Pull, pulled up, pants up, show off socks, sock tees. Again, look both ways. Famous. It's true. Fred Astaire told Michael that if you wear white socks with high waters, it'd make it look like your feet were moving faster. <clears throat> Fred Astaire should know. Again, I look both ways. Famous pause. Show the microphone. Ready to glide, glide backwards. noon. drag ball to heel. Gravity's avi replaced by feet. Three seconds of air. Lunar spin toe stop. A real photograph, a real letter, and a real gun. Not a visual trick like wearing white socks to highlight your feet, but real mental illness like baby hair frozen in a web slide on the sides of a grown man's face. Baby oil, not grease is the word. (laughs) Mixing a nervous breakdown 91 times. Can't hide your real snake not muscles. The one that eats more than interviewers, yet such royalty deserves extra royalties. A stare, an admirer, dates with Brooke, dates with Tatum, Liza, a weird friend, Liz, a weirder white mother. A public appearance and an intimate photo with the black woman other than Dinah Ross might help. The moment you do in the video, you turn into your middle name, you get Joseph's eyes be careful what you do jump kick with a quick with a twist the shaking hand gestures no kick right leg possessed fist fist in the glove twist open fist a fury that sparkles a fury that stands the mic grabs a mercy weakening body lowers body rises spin to the edge insistence ankle action four forward moments in search of reverse lastly a bow Classic, point down, point up, but first stomp the ground, alone in Catherine's jacket. Door to door to paradise, the kingdom's paradise, paradise to truth, awake to truth, truth to the witness, Jehovah's witness, applause, uh, Paris, burning. Our Pulitzer, Natasha Trethway.
0: Thomas Sayers Ellis. The final poet in this reunion of the Dark Room Collective is Natasha Trethaway. Born in Mississippi, Natasha Trethaway studied at the University of Georgia and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. In June 2012, Trethaway was named U.S. Poet Laureate.
7: So I'm just going to read a couple of poems tonight. Um, and again, thank you all for um, coming out um, to see us for this wonderful reunion and me getting to see all my friends that I haven't seen in a while. I have a new book coming out in September, and so I'm going to read just two poems from that. Um, This first poem is after a series of Costa paintings. The Costa paintings in colonial Mexico represented the mixed blood unions that were taking place in the colony. They always began uh, with the the white Spanish father. They were in a series of 16, uh, and they showed the white Spaniard father and um, the, the wife and the offspring that they would have created. And also they had the taxonomies, the various uh, names created to name these mixed-blood children right there on the paintings. One of the things I was interested in about them is that um, once you were um, born a mixed-blood, your name was recorded in the Book of Costas, and that had a lot to do with um, the rest of your life. I was also interested in the uh, widely held belief in colonial Mexico and, of course, other places that indigenous blood was over a few generations able to be purified back to whiteness, but that the taint of African blood was irreversible. So you got names like Mulatto Returning Backwards, Hold Yourself in Midair, and I Don't Understand You. This is after a series by Juan Rodriguez Suarez, circa 1715. Taxonomy. One, de Espanol y de India produce mestizo the canvas is a leaden sky behind them heavy with words gold letters inscribing an equation of blood this plus this equals this as if a contract with nature or a museum label ethnographic Precise. See how the father's hand beneath its crown of lace curls around his daughter's head. She's nearly fair as he is. Calidad. See it in the brooch at her collar, the lace framing her face. An infant. She is born over the servant's left shoulder, bound to him by a sling. The plain blue cloth knotted at his throat. If the father, his hand on her skull, divines as the physiognomist does the mysteries of her character, discursive, legible on her light flesh in the soft curl of her hair, we cannot know it. So gentle the eye he turns toward her. The mother, glancing sideways toward him, the scarf on her head, white as his face, his powdered wig, gestures with one hand, a shape like the letter C. C, she seems to say, what we have made. The servant, still a child, cranes his neck, turns his face up, toward all of them, he is dark as history, origin of the word native, the weight of blood, a pale mistress on his back, heavier every year. Two, the Espanol y Negra produce mulatto. Still, the centuries have not dulled the sullenness of the child's expression. If there is light inside him, it does not shine through the paint that holds his face in profile, his domed forehead, eyes nearly closed beneath a heavy brow. Though inside the boy's father stands in his cloak and hat, it's as if he's just come in, or that he's leaving. We see him transient, rolling a cigarette, myopic, his eyelids drawn against the child passing before him. At the stove, the boy's mother contorts, watchful, her neck twisting on its spine, red beads yoked at her throat like a necklace of blood, her face so black she nearly disappears into the canvas, the dark wall upon which we see the words that name them. What should we make of any of this, remove the words above their heads, put something else in place of the child, a table, perhaps, upon which the man might set his hat, or a dog upon which to bestow the blessing of his touch? And the story changes. The boy is a palimpsest of paint, layers of color, history rendering him that precise shade of in-between. Before this, he was nothing, blank canvas. Before image or word. Before a last brushstroke fixed him in his place. Three, de Espanol y mestiza produce castiza. How not to see in this gesture the mind of the colony? In the mother's arms, the child, hinged at her womb, dark cradle of mixed blood, call it Mexico, turns toward the father, reaching to him as if back to Spain, to the promise of blood alchemy, three easy steps to purity. From a Spaniard and an Indian, a mestizo. From a mestizo and a Spaniard, a castizo. From a castizo and a Spaniard, a Spaniard. We see her here, one generation away, nearly slipping her mother's careful grip. Four. The Book of Costas. Call it the catalog of mixed bloods, or the book of not, not Spaniard, not white, but mulatto returning backwards, or hold yourself in midair, and the marisca, the lobo, the chino, sambo, albino, and the note entiendo, the I don't understand you. Guidebook to the colony, record of each crossed birth, it is the typology of taint, of stain, blemish, sullying spot, that which can be purified, that which cannot, Canaan's black fate. How, like a dirty joke, it seems, what do you call that space between the dark geographies of sex? Call it the taint, as in, taint one and it taint the other, (laughs) illicit and yet naming still what is between. Between her parents, the child mulatto returning backwards cannot slip their hold, the triptych their bodies make, in paint, in blood, her name, written down in the book of castas, all her kind in thrall to a word. So I think in the, um, in the 18th century, certainly in the United States, if not elsewhere, it was Thomas Jefferson who first called for a kind of comparative anatomy, dissection of the Negro in order to determine the essential nature of difference and thus inferiority. This is Dr. Samuel Adolphus Cartwright on Dissecting the White Negro. 1851, to strip from the flesh the specious skin, to weigh in the brain pan seeds of white pepper, to find in the body its own diminishment, blood deep and definite. To measure the heft of lack. To make of the work of faith the work of science. Evidence the word of God. Canaan be the servant of servants. Thus to know the truth of this. This derelict corpus, a dark compendium. This atavistic assemblage, flatter feet, bowed legs, a shorter neck. So deep the tincture. See it? We still know white from not. And this last poem is called Enlightenment. In the portrait of Jefferson that hangs at Monticello, he is rendered two-toned, his forehead white with illumination, a lit bulb, the rest of his face in shadow, darkened as if the artist meant to contrast his bright knowledge, its dark subtext. By 1805, when Jefferson sat for the portrait, he was already linked to an affair with his slave. Against a backdrop blue and ethereal, a wash of paint that seems to hold him in relief, Jefferson gazes out across the centuries, his lips fixed as if he's just uttered some final word. The first time I saw the painting, I listened as my father explained the contradictions. How Jefferson hated slavery, though, out of necessity, my father said, had to own slaves. That his moral philosophy meant he could not have fathered those children. Would have been impossible, my father said. For years, we debated the distance between word and deed. I'd follow my father from book to book, gathering citations, listen as he named, like a field guide to Virginia, each flower and tree and bird, as if to prove a man's pursuit of knowledge is greater than his shortcomings, the limits of his vision. I did not know then the subtext of our story, that my father could imagine Jefferson's words made flesh in my flesh, the improvement of the blacks in body and mind in the first instance of their mixture with the whites, or that my father could believe he'd made me better. When I think of this now, I see how the past holds us captive, its beautiful ruin etched on the mind's eye, my young father, a rough outline of the old man he's become needing to show me the better measure of his heart, an equation writ large at Monticello. That was years ago. Now we take in how much has changed. Talk of Sally Hemings, someone asking, how white was she? Parsing the fractions as if to name what made her worthy of Jefferson's attentions. A near-white quadroon mistress, not a plain black slave. Imagine stepping back into the past, Our guide tells us then, and I can't resist whispering to my father, This is where we split up. I'll head around to the back. (laughs) When he laughs, I know he's grateful I've made a joke of it. This history that links us, white father, black daughter, even as it renders us other to each other. Thank you.
0: That was Natasha Trethewey closing out this reunion of the Darkroom Collective. The event was sponsored by the Poetry Foundation and took place in Chicago on April 12, 2012. Neasayu Sayu-Degan's chapbook, Undressing the River, was published in 2011. Her poetry has also appeared in various journals and anthologies. John Keane is the author of the novel Annotations and the poetry collection Seismosis. Sharon Strange's poetry has appeared in numerous anthologies. Her collection, Ash, won the Barnard Prize in 2001. Major Jackson's poetry books are Leaving Saturn, Hoops, and Holding Company. Thomas Sayers Ellis is the author of The Genuine Negro Hero, The Maverick Room, and Skin Incorporated, Identity Repair Poems. Natasha Trethewey's books include Native Guard, which won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, Beyond Katrina, A Meditation on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, Domestic Work, and most recently, Thrall. Keep up with the world of poetry by visiting the Poetry Foundation website, where you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.